Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. As you know, we finished the book of uh, Daniel a couple weeks ago, and so today we're starting a brand new series uh, on uh, Sefer Mishlei, uh, on the book of Proverbs. Uh, in all my years of, of uh, teaching and preaching, uh, I have never actually talked through the book of Proverbs before, so this will be the first time. And so today is part one. I'm not sure how many parts there'll be. I'm guessing, I don't know, probably not 31. <laughs> Maybe half that number. <laughs> so let's turn to Proverbs 1, beginning in verse 1. We have it on the overhead as well. We're going to skip, skip around a little bit. We're doing verses 1 to 9, and then verse 22, and then 32 and 33. So Proverbs 1, 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, Shlomo, the son of David, the king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what's right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young, let the wise listen and add to their learning, let the discerning get guidance, for understanding proverbs and parables, uh, the sayings and the riddles of the wise. Yirat Adonai Reshit Da'at. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Listen, my son, to your father, to your father's instruction, and don't forsake your mother's teaching. They're a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. How long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery? And fools hate knowledge, for the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell in safety and be at ease without fear or harm. Amen. The book of Proverbs is all about wisdom, uh, what it is, how to get it. Uh, all throughout life, you have choices. Uh, lots of choices, especially in our modern, high-tech, Western society. Choices about education, work, career, uh, relationships, marriage. And if you don't make good choices, it can be very destructive. Bad choices blow up on you. Every choice is like a fork in the road. Uh, and once you make it, it's very hard, often impossible, to go back. And it's especially true of wrong choices. So what does it take to make good choices? It takes wisdom. And the book of Proverbs is probably the, mo the most famous text in the world on wisdom. Millions of people for thousands of years have looked at this book for help. So on the overhead, uh, here in chapter one, we're gonna see four things. Number one, what wisdom is, uh, why it's important, why it's a problem, uh, and where to get it. So first, let's look at what wisdom is. Look at Proverbs one, verses one to two. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, uh, ben David, the king of Israel, for gaining wisdom. Well, what does wisdom, and the Hebrew here is hakmah, uh, what does wisdom hakmah mean? Well, let's look at its synonyms that are given right here in our text. The other words that are right here used as synonyms to describe wisdom. Uh, the first is the word bina, uh, uh, insight. So look at Proverbs 1, verse 2. For gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of bina, words of insight. So on the overhead, what is insight? 
yes. It mean, insight is the ability to notice differences and to see fine distinctions that others can't see. So, for example, uh, when a master detective uh, looks at a crime scene, he's able to see maybe 20 or 30 cue, uh, clues where everyone else just sees one or two. That's an example of insight. And insight doesn't just mean noticing 20 or 30 clues where everyone else only sees two, but it also means imagining 20 or 30 things where other people can only imagine one or two. So, for example, someone says, I'm in this situation, there's only really two things I can do, uh, and, and, uh, but a wise and insightful person will say, no, you've got at least 15 different things you can do here in this situation, and here they are, boom, 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 boom. So wisdom includes insight, the ability to see distinctions where others just see a blur. Second, in our text, we also have this word prudence. Look at Proverbs 1, verse 3 to 4. For receiving instruction in, in prudent behavior, doing what's right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple. This word prudence is actually made up of two different Hebrew words here. Uh, musar, uh, moral instruction, and, and sechel. Uh, sechel is, is, is wisdom, prudence, uh, being circumspect, insightful, understanding, uh, having smarts <laughs> to ponder, living and acting skillfully. The emphasis here is on being practical, uh, having common sense, being able to be strategic, uh, how to get things done, uh, how to make a goal into reality. Not just to talk about it, but actually bring it into reality. Uh, so wise people are not just characterized by insight, but also by foresight. Uh, they don't just diagnose the problem, they also know how to solve it. They're, they're prudence, a strategic, practical skill. The third word here is instruction, uh, uh, musar. Look at Proverbs 1, verse 2. Beginning wisdom and musar and instruction for understanding words of insight. Musar means moral instruction. It also means character, uh, depth of character. So let's put all these together. Um, here, what is wisdom? Uh, there's Old Testament scholar, uh, Gerhard von Rad, he says this, and it's on the overhead. He says, wisdom, according to the Bible, is competence with regard to the realities of life. Competence with regard to how life really works. So for example, is wisdom knowledge? Well, wisdom assumes knowledge. If you don't know anything about a subject, uh, you can't be wise about it. Uh, so you can't be wise unless you know. But you can also obviously know a lot about a subject and still be stupid. <laughs> knowledge alone does not equal wisdom. Uh, and the overhead. Uh, because wisdom is knowing what to do with the knowledge that you have, how to practically use it. Okay, well, is wisdom the same as being good, of, of being moral, uh, following the rules? According to the Bible, uh, if God made the universe, and he did, <laughs> and you disobey him, it's not, it's, not, it's not only wrong, but it's stupid. <laughs> it won't work. Uh, so biblically, wisdom assumes uh, that you're good. Uh, it assumes you're following the moral rules. But it's also quite possible to be very moral and still be stupid. <laughs> you can be moral, but still not be wise. Wisdom isn't less than being good. It includes goodness, but it's not just being good. Uh, it's more. It's more than just following the moral rules. Because wisdom is knowing the right thing to do uh, in the 80% uh, of, of life situations where the moral rules don't give you clear direction, uh, where they just don't directly apply. So, for example, you have two different job offers. Uh, what's the biblical thing to do? 
Which job do I take? The Bible's moral rules don't give you an answer here. Uh, both jobs are morally okay, let's assume. Neither would require you to do anything immoral. Uh, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a sin to take either one. But if, you, but if you take the wrong job, it can be a disaster. So you can be very moral and follow all the moral rules and still not know the right thing to do in the 80% of life situations to which the moral rules do not directly apply. So you've got to be knowledgeable, you've got to be good, but wisdom is more than all that. Uh, because as we've seen, uh, you can be both knowledgeable, you can be moral, you can be good, and, and still lack wisdom. Wisdom is competence regarding the realities of life. Uh, it's competence with regard to how life really works. That's the first point, what wisdom is. It's on the overhead. And number two, uh, why is it important? I think our discussion already uh, begins to show us why it's important. Look at Proverbs 1, verse 32. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. That's saying uh, that for people without wisdom, the simple, the fools, it's not just unfortunate for them that they lack wisdom, but it'll kill you. It'll destroy you. Why? Let's look at this. Let's look at these two words, the simple uh, and the fool. Uh, these two Hebrew words are used, by the way, throughout the, the book of Proverbs. So on the overhead, uh, the simple is a word that means someone who's young, naive, people who are too unrooted and too unformed to make smart decisions. It denotes a person who's gullible, uh, without moral direction, and, include, and, in, and inclined to do evil. Uh, it's a person who doesn't think for himself, but just goes with the crowd, uh, easily swayed in the wrong direction. And it's a particular form of foolishness that young people tend to fall into. Notice Proverbs 132, it says on the overhead, it says, for the waywardness of the simple will kill them. Waywardness means to go off the road, uh, to go off the right path, off the derech. Uh, the Hebrew word here is, uh, interestingly, it's a mushavat, uh, I'm sorry, mishuvat. It's from the Hebrew root shuv, uh, which means to turn. Uh, it's the same root we get the word teshuva from, uh, which means to turn back to God, uh, to repent. But here, mishuvat, it means the exact opposite. Uh, it means to turn away. It refers to a moral defection uh, and apostasy, uh, backsliding, to turn away from wisdom. Uh, and what often harms us when we're young is that we care so much about what our friends and our peers and the people we hang out with, what they think. Uh, when you're a teen or, or a young adult, to have the people you like think that you're not cool, well, that's the worst thing in the world for you. <laughs> uh, and because most young people are so incredibly affected by what their friends think, they very often go off the road. Uh, they leave the path of wisdom and righteousness. Uh, they'll be wayward going off the way uh, because they're too concerned with what other people think. They're, they're too affected by, by their friends' opinions. So instead of doing the wise thing, they do the popular thing. Uh, and looking back, there are so many choices that people make when they were in this simpleton mode. When you look back on, on your younger years, you, you, could, you could say to yourself, why did I think I'd get away with that? <laughs> why did I think that would work? Uh, why, did, why, why did I think I wouldn't be found out? It was because I was blinded by the crowd I was hanging out with. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. 
So that's one danger. Uh, the waywardness of the simple will kill you. But the other warning listed here in verse 32 uh, is, is the fool. Look at Proverbs 1, verse 32. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. The Hebrew word for fool here is kasil. Uh, it actually means almost the opposite kind of foolishness uh, as the simpleton. Uh, the fool is a person who's wise in his own eyes. Uh, that's the characteristics of the fool in the book of Proverbs. So on the overhead, so a, a simpleton is a young person who's too concerned with what others think, whereas a fool is someone who doesn't care enough about what other people think. Uh, that he's wise in his own eyes, uh, and, and he's set in his ways. Uh, so again, on the overhead, a fool is self-righteous, uh, opinionated, stubborn, hard to persuade, gets his back up if you try to correct him, and in fact despises correction. So in some ways, biblically, uh, the fool and the simpleton are opposites. Again, the simpleton is someone who's too concerned with what other people think, whereas the fool is someone who's not concerned enough. Fools don't listen to what others say. You can't reason with them. Uh, they're set in their ways. They, they're sure that they know. Uh, but, but they're both, the simpleton and the fool, are out of touch with reality. And wisdom is confidence with regard to reality. Wisdom is doing the right thing in the situation that fits the reality as God has made it. God made the world in a certain way. It's God's world. It's also a broken world, though, because of sin. And a wise person sees uh, the created brokenness of reality and asks, what's the wisest thing to do here? Simpletons aren't in touch with reality. Uh, they're in touch with their friends. On the opposite end of the spectrum, fools aren't in touch with reality either because they're only in touch with their own pride, uh, their own dignity. You know, they're sure that they know what's best. Uh, but what it takes to be wise is to be in touch with reality. Simpletons and fools, whether they're too open to what other people think or not open enough, neither are in touch with reality. So, for example, here you have a really difficult situation, and you're in it with people, and here's the question. Well, should I speak out, say something? Uh, should I open my mouth? Should I just tell them everything? Uh, and should I confront? Or should I be quiet? Should I let it be not say anything. And as we go through the book of Proverbs, we're going to see that each of these responses might be right in different situations. So, for example, Proverbs 26, verse 4 says, Don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you yourself become like him. But the very next verse, Proverbs 26, verse 5, says the opposite, right? Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So which is it? <laughs> It depends on the situation. In general, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Don't answer his, question, his questions in line with his, his foolish mode of reasoning. Because if you descend to his, his level to argue with him, you you'll yourself will just end up looking like a fool. But there are occasions when important issues are at stake, like the gospel itself, where the fool must be dealt with, lest credence be given to what he says and he thinks he's wise, or he's considered wise by others. Paul, for example, spoke, about, uh, uh, spoke like a, a so-called fool to correct the foolishness of the Corinthians. So you see, you really don't know, uh, we really don't know how to read the book of Proverbs because we look at the book of Proverbs as this, a bunch of rules, but it's not a bunch of rules. It's about wisdom. It's about life as it actually works. 
And these two seemingly opposite proverbs are not contradictions. Again, what it's trying to say is, is sometimes you ought to confront a fool, sometimes you shouldn't. And a wise person knows the difference. Now, here's the problem. We're generally not in touch with reality enough to know when to do it and when not to do it. Why? And that brings us to point number three on the overhead here. here uh, here's why wisdom is such a problem. Uh, years ago, the Atlantic Monthly magazine did a, uh, an interview with this famous uh, psychologist, uh, Dr. Jerome Kagan. Uh, he taught psychology at Harvard. Uh, and in this article, he says that across 36 different cultures, with tens of thousands of people studied, we now know that the neurochemistry in us creates three basic habitual reactions to threats. And so there's, there's, they've studied this uh, over that years and years and years. So according to these studies, there are three ways in which our, our own neurochemistry has wired us to respond to a danger or a threat or a problem. He says some people are anxious, some are aggressive, and some are what he calls philosophical. He says that anxious people are wired to instinctively say, let me get out of here <laughs> in the face of danger. Uh, when there's a threat, you say, let me get out of here. I'm, I'm gone. Uh, for those who are aggressive, when there's a problem, it's the opposite. You say, let me get in. Uh, let me get in here and deal with it. Uh, I'm going to go, go, go get it before it gets me. So the anxious person tends to be pessimistic. They, they you know, think this will never work. Uh, just leave. The aggressive people tend to be optimistic and say, I can handle this. Let's get in there. You know, let, let's deal with it. Let's solve it. Let's fix it. And the philosophical people are wired to say something like this. Just calm down. Let's not do anything rash. Uh, no use getting bent out of shape. Let's just wait and see and observe. Now, Professor Kagan, he goes on to say, we're all wired for one of these three innate responses. For each of us, one of these responses just feels right to us. Uh, it feels wise to you. It happens instinctively. It feels like the best thing to do, and you do it without even thinking. But through his studies, he realized, and this is the interesting part, in most situations, your habitual response is inappropriate. He says anxious people are best in situations where the danger level is really high because the only way you're going to survive is without spending a lot of time thinking about it, but just get, get out of there. So the anxious response is typically the best response in, in highly dangerous situations. So anxious people are the most functional uh, in, in that situation. He says aggressive people are best when it comes to a mid-level of danger. Uh, if the danger is mid-sized, then you, know, you can, with confidence, you can believe that, you can say, I can handle this. Uh, often makes sense and it pays off. Uh, but even if, you, even, if it, even if it doesn't pay off, since it's only a mid-level danger, it's not lethal to you. And the philosophical types are best in situations that look worse than they really are. If you're in a situation that looks dangerous, but actually is not, the philosophical type says, Let's just slow down, let's stop, let's observe. And some situations are really not that bad. But if you act evasively, like the anxious person, or aggressively, like the aggressive person, you can actually make it a lot worse. So Kagan says, you realize whatever seems the most natural way for you to deal with threats is usually, most of the time, wrong. <laughs> in the exact right spot, it's perfect. But in many cases, it's inappropriate, it's dysfunctional. In some cases, it's absolutely lethal. Now, what does all this mean? He goes on to say this, it sounds like something right out of the book of Proverbs. I'm gonna put it on the overhead. He says, modern parents 
have taught their children, that taught that their children need to find themselves uh, and be themselves. But unless parents intervene, their children's natural temperament will dominate them, and they won't learn how to act wisely in situations in which their habitual temperamental response is inappropriate. Good parenting will see the dark side of their children's temperament and will intervene, showing them that they actually have a much greater range of possible responses. So, for example, uh, the aggressive person has to realize that, yes, sometimes you are to blame. <laughs> and the anxious person needs to realize sometimes you're not to blame. And the philosophical needs to realize that sometimes things really are terrible. <laughs> so parents need, with their children, to challenge the anxious ones to be bold. Uh, and the bold ones to be anxious. And the pessimistic to have hope. And the chronically sunny to worry a bit more. Do you see why it's so hard to be wise in every situation? Proverbs 22, verse 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it out far from him. This proverb says we're all naturally foolish. Folly forms a part of a child's nature. Children have a natural inclination to foolishness. And the way we're wired often leads us to respond in habitual ways that are inappropriate. Uh, they're, they're out of touch with the reality. Our natural responses are, are, are more just in touch with our own temperament, that's all. Uh, our, opinion with what the, what, or our opinion with what the crowd says. But they're not in touch with reality. Fools are people who aren't in touch with reality. So on the overhead, Proverbs says foolishness is natural. You've heard of the doctrine of original sin? I'm gonna call this the doctrine of original folly. Wisdom must be acquired. If you're just yourself, you're going to be a fool. If your parents just let you be yourself, you're going to be a fool. If you let yourself just be yourself, you're going to be a fool. Do you see the problem, what I'm calling the problem of wisdom? How it, it, it's not natural, wisdom is not natural, it must be developed. Unless you learn wisdom, you're going to make terrible choices. But wisdom, and here's the key point, wisdom takes years. We don't like that, hear that, do we? It takes years of training. It takes years of humbling yourself. It takes years of not being wise in your own eyes. It takes years of being corrected by people and, and being willing to receive correction. It takes years of being mentored and trained uh, and learning. Years of studying God's word. Years of getting to know the Lord. To know your, years of getting to know your own heart. It takes years of pushing yourself beyond your comfort zones, pushing yourself beyond your natural temperament. It takes years to develop godly wisdom. And if you don't, you're going to be killed or destroyed or make bad choices that will blow up on you. And our modern culture is completely against this. Our culture says you just need to be yourself. Our culture says look deep inside yourself and be authentic to your own personally chosen identity. And don't let your parents or your church or your synagogue or your Bible or any outside force influence you. Don't fight against your temperament. Don't learn wisdom. Oh no, just be yourself. That's the mantra of our modern age. Whatever you identify as, you know, as the flavor of the month, let your natural fallen nature just run wild. Our modern individualistic culture says, just be yourself however you identify yourself. 
give free reign to your every indulgence and temptation uh, and fad. And if you have a problem, well, just find a technique to, to deal with it. On the overhead, in his book, The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis, uh, in, in summarizing the difference between antiquity and modernity, uh, writes this. For the wise man of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. And the solution was knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. That's the ancient way. Our problem is we're not conformed to reality. Uh, how do we conform our soul to reality? Uh, and the answer of the past ages is virtue and wisdom and self-discipline and, and changing yourself for the better. But today we turn everything upside down. Uh, and instead, we seek how to subdue and conform reality to our wishes. That's what modern people want. And the solution is a technique. So, for example, plenty of believers who consider themselves not to be influenced by our culture, but to be more influenced by the Bible, in reality are far more influenced by our culture than they realize, than they think. So, for example, uh, over the years, people have come to me and said, I've got a choice to make. Uh, I've, got to ch I've got to choose this or this or that. And I want to know God's will. And that's good. That's right. That's spiritual. And they say, what do I have to do to find out what God wants me to do? Uh, they say, so when I pray, how can I tell which of the options God wants? Is there a way for me to pray where I can sense and know what God's showing me? So, for example, if I feel more peace when I pray about option A, is that God showing me that his will for me is option A? How do I discern the Lord guiding me to show me what I should do? And they often don't like my response, <laughs> at least not at first. Because I tell them, yes, uh, having peace and, and your outward circumstances uh, and the counsel of others, these are all highly helpful in discerning God's will. But ultimately, you need wisdom. And biblically, to discern God's will, you need to become a wise person. And that takes years of training through learning, through prayer, through getting to know God, through getting to know his word, through getting to know your own heart, uh, through going through suffering, uh, going be being corrected by people that you're willing to, to submit yourself to. Uh, and over time, you slowly, slowly, slowly become a discerning, insightful, prudent, wise person. And then when you have a choice to make, Choose the option you think is best based on your godly wisdom, developed over years through these spiritual disciplines. Because when you say, I want to learn how to pray in such a way that, that God will show me his will for various decisions I have to make, that's a technique. And God will not be put in a box. And God will not be conformed to, to a, a cookie-cutter recipe. When you try to reduce finding God's will to a technique, you subconsciously or unconsciously are just conforming your ideas, your ideals, to our modern Western culture. Without realizing it, you're just doing what your culture teaches. You're not trying to conform your soul to reality. Rather, you're trying to conform reality to your soul. It's not you changing, but you finding a technique to shortcut your quest for discerning God's will. So, what, so uh, what you're saying is, so uh, what you, basically what you're saying is, no, uh, I haven't spent years of praying. I haven't spent years submitting myself to spiritual authority uh, and learning correction. I haven't spent years of experience. I haven't spent years of consistent Bible study and in prayer and, and long obedience in the same direction. No, I want an instant technique. 
So do you see the problem we have today in our culture of obtaining wisdom? Wisdom is being competent with regard to the realities of life. The real problem is that we're all fools by nature. And if we don't, if we don't learn the wisdom to make good choices, our foolishness is going to destroy us. So in the overhead, that's what wisdom is and why it's important and what the problem is. And then finally, number four, where do we get it? How do we find wisdom? Well, there's one verse in this passage that at least tells us how to begin that search. How do you find wisdom? Here's how it begins. Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So on the overhead again, here's how you find wisdom. It's through two things. Paradoxical fear and the foolishness of grace. Paradoxical fear and the foolishness of grace. First, paradoxical fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear in this verse is obviously a positive thing, right? But we usually tend to think of fear as negative. In fact, the Bible often instructs us, fear not, don't be afraid. We see it all the time in the scriptures. For example, uh, 1 John 4, verse 18, perfect love casts out fear. On the next slide. Uh, or 2 Timothy 1, 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear. So why is the fear of the Lord here a very positive and indeed an essential attribute? Well, there's a negative and a positive kind of fear. Uh, there's two ways to be afraid in the presence of somebody. Uh, the first way is you're afraid if you think they might hurt you uh, or hit you or say something mean to you. In other words, if you distrust, distrust this person, you can easily be scared of them and especially scared of getting into their presence. But there's another way of going into the presence of someone and not being afraid. Christopher Lee, this actor who played uh, Soromon in Lord of the Rings, he once did an interview years ago where he talked about once actually meeting J.R.R. Tolkien in person. Uh, and, he, and he has loved and revered Tolkien. And in this interview, he talked about the fact that he went into, that Christopher Lee said, I went into some kind of almost trembling in his presence. <laughs> he said, and I almost knelt. Now here's the point. When you find yourself in the presence of someone that you revere, where you're, where, uh, in whom you, you're in such awe of, you start to tremble. But it's a positive fear. It's not a negative fear on the overhead. The, the negative fear is you're afraid someone's going to hurt you because you distrust them. But a positive fear is you're afraid you're going to disappoint them. You're going to dishonor them. You're going to grieve them because you love them so much, because you appreciate them so much. On the overhead, the negative fear is actually self-centered. I'm afraid I'm going to get hit. It's all about me. Uh, but positive fear is about the other person. I don't want to dishonor them uh, or grieve them or disappoint them or offend them. And that is the fear of the Lord on the overhead. That's a fear that's a joyful fear, a positive fear. It's all in reverence and wonder before him. It's not being afraid he's going to condemn you. It's not being afraid he's going to hurt you. But rather you're afraid you're going to grieve him. If I put a priceless Ming Dynasty vase in your hands, it's beautiful, it's thousands of years old, it's worth millions of dollars, 
you might be scared. Why? Not because you think it's going to hurt you, right? <laughs> you're afraid you're going to hurt it. The fear of the Lord is a joyful fear. It evokes uh, such awe and wonder and, and reverence and love. You don't want to grieve him. And you would do anything to avoid dishonoring him. Now, if you had that kind of fear, do you realize how different it would be? How different it is from, from just merely believing in God? Most people in the world obey God out of a negative fear. A negative fear is, I've got to obey God or he'll punish me. Thank you. But if you have this, this positive fear instead of this negative fear, excuse me, if you have this joyful fear, do you realize what that would do? It would make you wise. Do you know how? Well, first of all, you wouldn't be simple anymore. If you had this kind of relationship with Yeshua, if Yeshua meant this much to you, if you had this sense of his love and delight in you, and if you wanted more than anything else to love and delight him, then you wouldn't care what other people think. You wouldn't be a simpleton. You'd be over that. You wouldn't be wayward. You wouldn't be influenced by, by peer pressure. But you also wouldn't be the other kind of, of, of fool, the obstinate fool, because you wouldn't care what you think anymore either. You wouldn't have that insecurity of always needing to be right. You wouldn't be standing on your own dignity. There'd be a, a humility and an ease uh, and an openness. This positive, joyful fear of the Lord would be the very beginning of your wisdom. Now, how do you get that? Only way to get that is by being absolutely sure that God is not going to hurt you. Be absolutely sure that in spite of all your many flaws, he will not condemn you. The difference between a born-again believer, a person who has a new heart, a person who understands and embraces the gospel and is motivated by, by love uh, and joy and, and delight for Yeshua versus a person who's just knuckling under with, with slavish fear of judgment if he doesn't obey his master, that's the difference between someone with a positive fear of God uh, versus a negative fear of God. So how do you get this positive fear of God? You've got to know that there's no condemnation for you. Romans 8, verse 1 on the overhead. Therefore, now there's no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. Because through Messiah Yeshua, the law of the Spirit who gives you life has set you free from the, from the law, from the principle of sin and death. For what, I, for what the Torah was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, not that the Torah was bad, but our flesh was bad, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering for us. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the Torah might be fully met in us who don't live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So how can you know you're no longer under this condemnation? Put the book of Proverbs in the context of the whole Bible. In the Hebrew scriptures, we read about a negative and a positive fear. And in the New Covenant Scriptures, we also read about a negative and a positive foolishness. We've been looking today at the negative foolishness in, in Proverbs 1. But Paul also talks about a positive kind of foolishness. It's the foolishness of the cross. It's the foolishness of Messiah crucified. It's the foolishness of God's grace that a sinful world cannot understand. When Yeshua came to earth as the Messiah... He proclaims, I've come to bring the Malkut HaShemayim, the kingdom of God. 
Now, in the world's eyes, if you've come to be the king, uh, to clean up this place, to make everything right, to eliminate evil and suffering and, and, and bring justice into the world, what would you do? You'd come as a general, leading an army, and you would smite the evildoers. Or maybe you'd come as a philosopher and convince everybody. But Yeshua goes to the cross, the place of humiliation and torture and suffering and execution. And he becomes weak and dies on the cross. Paul says, by the world standards, that is foolishness. But they don't realize it's actually the consummate wisdom. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where's the wise person? Where's the Torah teacher? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? But since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know that God was, God, did not know that God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Messiah crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, Foolishness to Greeks, but, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Messiah, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than the, than the human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Amen. The reason the world sees the cross as foolishness is because the world doesn't see its need for the cross. When we look out at all the evil in the world, and everybody has a theory about why things are wrong in the world, uh, uh, of course, the problem is never us, right? <laughs> it's always them. It's always somebody else or some other group. What's really making the world a bad place is those people out there. Because we're, the, we're wise in our own eyes. We're blind to our own faults. We're, we're self-deceived. Our heart is deceptive. We can't see the log in our own eyes. So deep down, we're fools. And therefore, if Yeshua goes to the cross, it's going to look foolish to us. But it's actually the consummate wisdom of God. It's God's wisdom. Because only by Yeshua going to the cross uh, and taking our punishment, a punishment that, that, that we deserved, but we the, paid a penalty we, couldn't, we could not pay, could God someday be able to end evil without first ending us. Fools who are wise in their own eyes the cross is foolishness, whereas it's ultimately, it's actually the ultimate wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.25, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men, and the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. So if you want to be a Yeshua follower, you've got to become a fool, a fool for Yeshua. So first of all, you've got to admit, I've been a fool. Uh, I've been wise in my own eyes. And second, you must embrace the foolishness of the cross and look like a fool to the world, be willing to do so, especially in our secular, uh, anti-biblical Western society. But then you'll know there's no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. And then finally, look at Psalm 130, verse 4. Because I see your forgiveness and grace, because, because you've forgiven me, Lord, therefore I fear you. Do you see what this psalm is saying? 
Lord, when I see how gracious you are, Lord, when I see how good you are, when I see what you did for me to save me, uh, or when I see your grace and your goodness, it makes me tremble. I'm afraid in a positive way, afraid of grieving you, afraid of dishonoring you, afraid of disappointing you in any way. And when you have that joyful fear, it's the beginning of wisdom. Go seek it at the cross. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. The music team, please come up. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for this, this classic text uh, of living prudently, of making wise choices. Because by nature, Lord, we confess we're fools. Uh, we're born into original sin and into original folly. So, Lord, teach us to have a heart of wisdom, not try to shortcut the process. Uh, for true godly wisdom, Lord, we confess, takes time to develop, takes years of training, years of humbling ourselves, uh, years of not being wise in our own eyes, years of self-discipline and training in virtue and being corrected and, and mentored and, and submitting to others for correction, years of prayer and studying your word and getting to know you, Lord, getting to know our own heart. You tell us, Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Help us, Lord, to develop this godly fear. Not slavish fear of punishment, but godly, joyous awe and reverence of being in your presence. Fear of grieving you, a fear of sinning against you, of disappointing you, fear of dishonoring you. Help me, Lord, to develop this joy and awe and wonder before you, Lord. Help me, Lord, to have this positive fear of you. Lord, help me to, to, to uh, delight uh, and, and, and have delight in you and, and love you, Lord, uh, and want you more than anything else on this earth. And, and not being swayed by peer pressure or all that people think, or even, Lord, by what I think, uh, but to humble myself before you. Help me, Lord, today to embrace the foolishness of the cross, the foolishness of Messiah crucified, the foolishness to the world, but it's the wisdom, your wisdom, Lord, and it's your power. So, Lord, help me to be a fool for you, Yeshua. And then I'll be truly wise. And pray this in your name. Amen. Shabbat shalom.